0: You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length, members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear
1: Dear Prudence.
0: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again and as always I am your host Dear Prudence otherwise known as Daniel Mallory Orberg and with me in the studio this week is Chris Randall who came here from Canada. He's also written for places like Hazlitt, the New York Times Magazine, Pitchfork and Real Life that I, I should point out is in a, a publication called Real Life not just Real Life. Chris welcome. Hi. How how is everything going? How's um how's life outside of Canada just treating you?
1: <laughs> um, well, I was uh uh let's let's say euphemistically, I was between apartments for the past month, and I
0: have been getting many text updates from you about how that search has been going, and it sounds nightmarish.
1: Ba- basically, uh, I'm a, as you may have people may guess from the bio, I am a freelance writer, which uh is not a uh demographic beloved of landlords and there was there was one who seemed like he was gonna rent me a place and just kept making more and more deranged requests for various documents that i always complied with and you know I, i i gave him uh like a reference for my old landlords uh pay stubs and then he was finally like could we go over your last six months of bank statements one by one and I sort of asked a couple of friends, like, this is, uh, this, this is like, psychotic, right? And, and they, they were like, yes. I
0: am so sorry that it is so difficult to find a place to live in a city that you would like to live in. And um, I don't think we have any landlords on the docket today. So at least we will be able to let you think about problems you don't have.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I do have an apartment again now. So that is not a problem I currently have. But Thank God. Yes, yeah, it, it keeps. I, I keep having this like recurring, uh, dark thought, which is just like the president is a landlord. Um, that that almost seems to explain everything.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, it, times are dark, as you said. Um, but let's go ahead and try to solve a handful of very specific problems over the next hour or so. Sure. All right. Would you read our first letter?
1: Yeah. Let me uh summon it up here. Subject: Not that weird. Dear Prudence. I am a gay man in my 30s. My boyfriend and I were planning to spend the holidays in my tiny hometown. My brother moved back there to be near our parents after a rough divorce. He has started seeing my high school ex girlfriend, who is a single mother herself. Frankly, I am happy for both of them. She is great and they deserve some happiness. My boyfriend is weirded out by this. He says he is fine, but keeps bringing up how odd it will be to see my ex across the dinner table. He has never lived in a small town. My graduating class had 50 kids and doesn't keep in touch with his exes. He says the past should stay in the past. I have spoken more about this with my boyfriend than I have my brother, and he is the one dating her. My boyfriend insists nothing is wrong, but the topic still comes up. We are flying there for a week and a half. I don't want this to get awkward since this is the first time everybody will be meeting my boyfriend. What should I do before I get the tickets?
0: Man, is there anything more just like low level but constantly frustrating than when somebody you are dating keeps saying, I don't have a problem with this, but I would like to bring it up in a pointed fashion like on the hour every hour.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't. Uh, I am also not from a small town. I'm from Toronto, a, a very big town, and I don't get what's weird about this. I I, I don't know. I, I think it's rather sweet, actually. Um,
0: especially given that like the letter writer has subsequently come out it's not like the letter writer is like oh part of me still wishes i could be with this woman like it's not even she's not even the gender to be jealous of
1: no like he came out he has a boyfriend his boy. his brother moved back home and is is with his ex like it, it 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 makes me think of you know some shakespearean comedy where everybody sort of improbably pairs off at the end
0: yeah um so i mean certainly like in the sense of like do i feel that the boyfriend in question has a kind of understandable response to this you know the letter writer's in his 30s this is his high school girlfriend um he has subsequently come out everyone else is super cool with it i, I think it's odd i think it's really odd that the boyfriend is is so weirded out by this um and I also i mean i don't i don't want to get super judgmental but i feel like especially if you are like gay, a lot of people do stay in closer touch with some of their exes just because it's a smaller community. So it's even weirder to me that he's like, the past should be in the past. You should never talk to anyone you ever dated previously.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder if it would be useful. Like, it's it's a little unclear how explicit the, the author has been about how he doesn't think this is weird. But I, I feel like it might be helpful for the boyfriend just to see this town, like, and how... You know, like, oh, there's my old school. There isn't another school. Like,
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think this is worth having a, a conversation before you go. And I think the, the thing to say to the boyfriend is nobody else thinks that it's weird. If you think that it's weird, let's talk about it. But I, I can tell you right now. If we're at home with a situation that everyone else has already talked about, and you are the one who brings up, isn't it weird? Isn't it strange? Um, That's going to be the weird thing.
1: Right, exactly. Like,
0: nobody's making this awkward except for you. Yeah, exactly. Like, clearly you're uncomfortable with this. That is okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable, but we need to talk about it now, and I want to know directly from you what it is, rather than just hearing periodically, boy, this is weird. Because I promise you, like, if we're visiting my brother and his girlfriend, and some guy they haven't met before says, isn't this weird? His response is not going to be, gosh, you're right, I better break up with her. Like... Uh, He cares about her. They're in a meaningful relationship. It's been a really long time since she and I were involved. Um, It's really not that weird given that we're from a small town and nothing about this is going to change. So whatever is bothering you about this, whatever is making you feel insecure or in need of reassurance, let's talk about it now because the way that it's coming up, um, it's not working for me. Uh, yeah. And beyond that, like, I, I think to just kind of lightly, if he does occasionally bring it up when you're home, just say like, I don't think it's weird. Because um, I think that can be kind of a great response. It's just a sort of like cheerful, like, oh, I actually don't think it's weird. Because then it's, you know, you're not getting into an argument with him. You're just sort of responding with, well, here's where I would put it on the weirdness scale. Let's talk about something else. Yeah. Yeah. In in general, I I have a hard time dealing with people who are just across the board like i don't think anyone should talk to anyone they've ever previously dated
1: Uh, yeah i i i feel like i have like at least a a cordial relationship with everybody you know like some of them are in other cities or whatever so we don't see each other or, or or talk very often but it's not like uh you know i've like destroyed all images of them and banished them from my mind
0: And certainly, you know, some relationships end badly. Some people you're like, I wish you well, but I don't really want to, like, get lunch together periodically. And that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. But the idea that, like, everybody should apply a scorched earth policy to anyone they've ever dated, including, like, girls they dated in high school before coming out, um, you know, which is just in terms of things that the letter writer's boyfriend should be, like, concerned about or jealous over, that feels, like, really, really, really low down
1: on the list. (laughs) yeah i I don't think this is a a romance that is going to be rekindled
0: yeah yeah or, or like bring up a lot of really uncomfortable feelings like oh remember that time junior year when we like yeah it's just it's just it's just cute it's charming that's all it is uh this next one is your turn to read
1: yeah it is subject what do i owe my friend dear prudence There's a woman in my tight-knit friend group who's currently in the hospital for mental health reasons, most of them stemming from her terrible relationship with her husband. I'm not surprised I loathe this man. He's made her quit her job more than once, shakes her for not being religious enough, is mean but not abusive to her cats. He casually advocates fascism and genocide. Normally, my response would be, get her the hell out of there. But I dislike this woman. She's constantly telling racist jokes, and there are credible allegations against her of sexual abuse. She knew his politics before the wedding and told everyone about them like they were a cutesy foible. I long ago stopped inviting her to my parties, avoiding going to events if she was there, etc. This friend group would be better if she wasn't in it, but that takes time. Meanwhile, I still hear all about her life. For now, she's in the hospital and needs a lot of emotional support and probably some resources to help her realize she needs to leave her husband. But what do I do? She's been bigoted to my face. How much do I need to chip in for flowers? Visiting hours? A place to stay? Should I be helping her due to the bonds of feminism and sisterhood? It feels inappropriate to continue writing her out of my life, considering her vulnerable position.
0: So, in a situation like this one,
1: um, I
0: think... There's a couple of things that are important to sort of stress. One is that it is both possible for someone to be suffering from an abusive marriage um, and also to be like a harmful or dangerous person or somebody who has committed like assault or serious harm against other people in their own right. Um, And that one doesn't cancel out the other. Um, so like regardless of anything else going on in her life that she may still very much need to be held accountable for, it does sound like it would be good for her to receive help to leave her husband. Um, and I think we can kind of just, I think the letter writer's already there. I just think we can all agree on that. Like she deserves help in leaving this man. She does not deserve to be abused. Um, I think it, it, it doesn't sound like right now she is in need of additional help, it sounds like she is being treated in the hospital. It sounds like she has multiple people in this pre-existing friend group who are already a part of her life and who are providing her with help and support. Um, so, you know, the the question here, I think, is really just: Is there something above and beyond all of that that I, letter writer, can provide her? Um, and if not, how do I deal with maybe residual feelings of guilt um, with not wanting to step up and help her out? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I. Oh, it's it. It just sounds like such a a, a fraught situation because y- you know this 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 woman has done awful things and has having awful things done to her, and it like. It, it, it makes you think of um, I I've, like I've never you know obviously used or uh, been involved with like um, domestic abuse shelters but I know they they do have um, protocols to deal with you know uh, women and children who are being uh, a- abusive or or you know like just bigoted in various ways yeah mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know if like that's uh, like if, if she would need to to like call on one of those eventually because you know the the author does mention like helping her find a place and and everything but um, mm-hmm. that that honestly seems like uh, like uh, th- this really th- this seems like a a case where. Um, the The average person is like maybe not even that well equipped to to deal with it.
0: Yeah, I I, th- I think here here's my read on this. I think the letter writer should find one or two um like not super super intimate ways to offer support in this moment of crisis, and then step back. Um, I think it's kind of fair to say like, does she already have people in her life? who can be there for her in a way that is consistent with the type of friendship that they have had? Um, is there a reason for me to suddenly increase our level of intimacy despite not actually being closely involved in her life? Um, and I don't think that there's a reason to think that right now. So, um, I think certainly encourage the friends of yours who do stay in touch with her. Like, Hey, if you guys have a pre-existing relationship, if she trusts you, if you talk, I really hope that you encourage her to leave her partner and to help her like find ways that she can, like, set aside money that he can't access, find, like, a a safety plan, um, talk to different, like, women's shelters or places that could maybe help her with that. So I think maybe choosing the people you know who know her better than you do, that's going to be a helpful way to not just, like, offer generic emotional support, but to say really clearly, I think she needs to leave him. And if she seems open and receptive to doing that, I hope that you can encourage her to do so. Um, And then maybe... You know, adding onto a card or some flowers um, that other people are taking in, so that you're part of a sort of general background of support, um, rather than like showing up and kind of like starting a relationship that you don't really have with her.
1: Yeah, I also I, I just looked at the the letter again, and it's also a little I, I, I ambiguous over whether you know whether these are these these reviews that she had. Our views might be too generous but but like before meeting this man or or whether they're like were kind of formed in response to his uh control over her life um i i, I think it's more just kind of a
0: question of it. She may very well be, in her own right, a, a bigoted and prejudiced person. Oh, yeah. Um, and that may just continue with or without him in her life. But even so, like, she deserves help in getting out of this abusive marriage. She deserves not to be, like, physically shaken for not being religious enough. Um, but when it comes to, I think, especially the stuff like um, her racism, the fact that you believe— there to be credible allegations against her of sexual abuse. Um, those those are pretty significant things. And again, that doesn't mean that she deserves to be abused now, but there's a reason, I think, that you feel reluctant to sort of um, uh, rush to become uh, emotionally close with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the, the other key here is that she needs resources to help her realize that she needs to leave. Um, I think especially if, if she were not able or willing to access that help if she wanted to stay in that marriage um you know it would not be safe or healthy for you to become like a new closer friend of hers um so yeah i think really to stress to the friends who keep in touch with her if she seems receptive i think you should encourage her to leave and like here are some resources local to our area that she might be able to access um if not um if 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 she decides to stay with him again i think it's better to stay at the distance that you already are um, to encourage your friends again, to like look out for her safety and to encourage her to leave whenever she's ready. uh, But not to get so entangled in her life that you find yourself um, developing a close friendship with her out of a sense of guilt or obligation while also feeling deeply, deeply concerned about the harm she may be committing against other people.
1: Yeah. I I think uh, staying at one remove like that is, is important.
0: Right. Especially because it's just like, you know, I don't think she thinks of you as an especially close friend. Um, So it's not even clear to me that she would be expecting much from you in this particular situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And frankly, like, again, this may not be something that you want to talk about while she is in the hospital, but in the longer run, I, I think to have some difficult conversations with your other friends to say like, I'm both concerned for her well-being in this marriage, and I'm also really concerned about these allegations of sexual abuse. Uh, I'm concerned about her racist comments, and I'm uh, concerned about her bigoted views. Um, what do you think about them? how do, How do you deal with that? Being as it seems close with her as you are, you know, these are things that you should know about your friends. These are things that you all should talk about. That doesn't mean breaking a confidence if you happen to know, you know, the person that she has abused or assaulted, but. Uh, there's no reason to sort of just quietly avoid her and then say nothing to your friends who are apparently still really comfortable getting lunch with her like these are these are difficult conversations that you should be having with them like if if she's constantly telling racist jokes and your other tight-knit friends spend a lot of time with her why aren't they bothered by it
1: mm-hmm. or you know if if her husband is advocating genocide i don't think i i would just be like oh uh That's cool. Where where are the potato chips or, you know, whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I think maybe it's time to turn some of that like lens towards the rest of your friend group and to kind of try to figure out what are your friend's response to those things? Because if their response is sort of like, oh, I don't take it seriously or, well, they're always like that, that's cause for concern and, and you need to push back against that, I think. It is complicated. I don't think this is going to be the sort of thing that you'll be able to figure out um, in the next couple of days, like the exact right amount of support to offer versus distance to um, pull up. I think it will be a difficult needle to thread and you'll have to thread it continually. Um, But I think as long as your main priorities are, um, is she getting her immediate needs met? Um, And are there other people closer to her who I can encourage to offer her support if she wants to leave? Um, And as long as you're able to kind of say yes to both of those questions, I don't think you need to drive over or offer your home to her. Um, I think you can keep that um, particular line relatively firm. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth... We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right. We're going to move from something complicated and messy to a nice, easy breakup with him. Which I always <laughs> enjoy as a sort of like uh, palate cleanser in between meals. Subject. I feel like my boyfriend is testing me. Dear Prudence, I've been dating my boyfriend for about eight months. Our relationship is wonderful most of the time. We make each other laugh, show affection, and tell each other I love you daily. However, I think my boyfriend is a bit insecure about himself and our relationship. In the past, he's often questioned why I love him. I always show affection, but I think he's still ruminating. The other day I told him I love you, and he responded with, but the real question is, do I love you? Sometimes I feel like he's testing me. We had a dispute recently, and he refused to hold my hand until I, quote, admitted defeat, questioning whether I was too proud. His little games annoy me. He'll make little comments that feel hurtful, and I have to be careful in how I respond and to not take them personally. How do you deal with a boyfriend who's testing you?
1: You dump him. (laughs) That is, that that line, but the question is, do I love you? Like, that's... That's the thing that, like, the supervillain says to the hero in in a sort of, like, facile screenplay about how they're not really that different from each other or whatever. Like, that is, is, like, supervillain talk.
0: Yeah, it's a really, like, I've never, I, I cannot imagine if somebody said that to me. Um, That is an awful thing to say. I, I, I can maybe imagine if it's, like, a wonderful relationship and you're being so playful and jokey with one another, but then you wouldn't be writing to me if that were the case. Like, if he said it and it kind of lingered... It's because you both knew he kind of meant it and he kind of wanted to see your face when you thought, oh, my God, does he not really love me? And he kind of wanted to know how scared and insecure he could make you in that moment because he wanted to feel in control and powerful and he wanted to do it at your expense.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's there's like having complicated feelings or or uncertain feelings about the person you're dating in this way. And then there's just, you know, you uh, emotionally manipulating them which is what he's doing.
0: Yeah. And I'll say this too, I get a fair amount of letters where somebody describes it's, it's almost always a boyfriend. Um somebody describes their boyfriend um and they'll describe something their boyfriend does that is manipulative, unkind, insensitive, all the way up to and including cruel, and it's almost always prefaced with I think he's insecure. And um maybe he is uh but i think kind of one of the reasons that it's more helpful to focus on what somebody is doing rather than why they might be doing it is like everybody can feel insecure all of us can feel insecure feeling insecure is not the problem um but if your response to your own insecurity is to chip away or diminish at the trust and the safety that somebody else feels when they're around you then you're being a shitty person like the the insecure, like whether or not something vulnerable is driving that lousy behavior is sort of now no longer the point. The point is now um, that you are behaving cruelly. And so it doesn't really matter if you felt insecure or if you felt sort of like like you would delight in watching someone else suffer because the net result is the same. Um, so I, mostly, I guess I, I just want to say, if anybody is trying to describe a boyfriend's unkind behavior and you kind of want to try to make an excuse for him or justify it by saying, I think he's insecure, you don't have to do that. Um, If someone's insecure, they have the ability to say, I feel insecure. Can we talk a little bit about that? Will you reassure me that you really love me? Right now, I feel afraid. Those are all things that it's real possible and easy to say. I just said them right now with my mouth.
1: Yeah, he does not sound vulnerable. He, He sounds like somebody, you know, uh, dangling a mouse over over their snake's cage or something.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and if you want to sort of like, um, make it seem not that bad by saying like, well, he's probably just insecure. The the reason that that feels tempting to do, I think, is because it means if I could only reassure him enough, he wouldn't have to do this. But the the fact that he chose to manifest that insecurity with cruelty in the beginning shows that he already thinks that that's okay. And so I don't really believe that there is any amount of reassurance that somebody else could provide him to make that insecurity go away, if that's his response to insecurity. Um, And so I think, uh, you know, if eight months in, he's already hitting you with, like, I need you to admit defeat... I'm not going to touch you until you admit defeat. I feel like you're too proud when we're just having what sounds like a pretty garden variety disagreement and I need to cut that down, which, by the way, to me suggests that what he thinks of as too proud is actually just like you displaying independence or confidence in yourself as a person. Um, I I think this is a really bad sign. And I think that if this is showing up eight months in, um, if you stick around with this guy It's going to be more testing, more games, more punishments until eventually it's going to be something like he used to show up a lot of affection, but that's really stopped lately.
1: Yeah. And also, like, I think I somehow glossed over the the eighth month's part initially, but that is not an insignificant amount of time. I was uh, created in eight months. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like that's um. That's especially like the thing of like his little games annoy me. He'll make little comments that feel hurtful. And I have to be careful in how I respond and not to take them personally. That is just like red flag, red flag, red flag. Like you're already editing your emotional responses to these little barbs because you know that – If you show that it hurts you, he's going to dig in deeper. Again, that's a real sign that this isn't just like genuine insecurity. That's a sign that he's looking for your weak spots and he's pressing a thumb in. Because what he wants is to control you and to make you always feel off guard, off balance, like you're falling behind, like you need to apologize or make something up to him um, so that he's always got the upper hand. Um, I think that's dangerous. I think that's a sign that he is not a person you can trust with your heart. And I think that you should leave him.
1: Dump dump the boyfriend.
0: Yeah, yeah. Find a guy who does not need to test you. Um, you know, that's just, it's just not what relationships are for is tests. Um, and so mostly I think I'm just worried that this letter writer is going to talk themselves out of um, taking this seriously and try to like say, it's not that big a deal. It's not all the time. Mostly he's real affectionate. Um, I-, I think that's kind of why he's mostly affectionate so that he can get those moments in. Like, I think that's all kind of part of the, the, the strategy. I don't think this is something little that you're blowing out of proportion um, or just like a minor issue that if you could only find the right response to, you could get him to stop. Um, I think this is a serious, serious sign that he does not have a good character. All right, that's it for that one. That's all I got. Is there anything left for you there? Do you feel like there's anything else that you would want to throw in there or suggest?
1: No, I, I I think just saying like you should dump him in, in 10 different ways was the best possible answer.
0: So often that is just the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> not always, but often. Oh, this next letter is really sweet. And also like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, it, it It definitely it took me back to a certain time in my life. The subject is, is this a crush? Hopefully not. Dear Prudence, I'm a gay man who's been happily married for three years. My husband has two cousins who are 12 and 14 years old. A few months ago, the 14-year-old came out to me at a family event. I was honored that he felt close enough to tell me this, and I, of course, gave him my love and support. He said it was okay to tell my husband, but asked that I not tell anyone else in the family yet, which I agreed. Since then, my husband and I have spent a lot of time with him and his brother, mostly just going out to eat, taking them to movies, and going to various family outings as a group. I think he might be developing a crush on me. I've caught him looking at me multiple times, only to quickly avert his gaze when I notice. He likes to text jokes and memes to me more than to my husband, asks what celebrities I find attractive, and tells me about his favorites. He'll jokily punch me, challenge me to wrestle, I wrestled in high school, and he likes to sit next to me on the couch when we watch TV. We have weekly Netflix nights where it's not uncommon for us to have five or six or more family members over for pizza and to watch movies. On multiple occasions, I've noticed that he waits to see where I sit, then sits next to me. This sounds terrible, but I'm a relatively handsome guy and I know what flirting looks like. I haven't said anything to him or my husband as I'm truly stumped. Lately, I've ensured that we're never alone together and have done my best to avoid physical contact other than hello and goodbye hugs. What else can I do? I love this kid. How do I maintain appropriate boundaries while still supporting him and helping him navigate being a gay teenager? I didn't have anyone like that when I was a closeted teen, and I don't want kids of my own, but I love the fact that I have the chance to be a mentor to him, and I want to do well. Ugh. This like really took me back to being fourteen years old.
1: I, I just want to say as, as an aside that the the phrasing "relatively handsome" is uh, perfect. Like,
0: I I loved that. Like, that.
1: That's that just that's how a character makes fun of you in a in an Alan Hollinghurst book. Like, <laughs> yes, a oh, relatively handsome. You know, in comparison.
0: <laughs> um, I did. But you know, sometimes you can get a read on a letter where someone will describe their own looks, and it can feel a little like, okay, we get it, you're hot. And sometimes it feels a little like. Okay, we get it. You are hot. You do have to deal with that. And it, for whatever reason, this felt to me like more of the category of like, I, I just like, this happens to me a lot. I, I I don't love talking about that. But it's just true that oftentimes people get real flirty with me. Um, I'm, I'm describing the letter writer. I'm not talking about myself. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, I, I, my my read on this was that the, the letter writer is reading the situation correctly. And it also threw me back to being like 13 and 14 years old. And um, my mom worked with this crew of like mostly guys in their like late 20s who would come over to the house like once a week for meetings. And I was like a little bit in love with all of them in the way that like Dorothy is a little bit in love with the Tin Man and the <laughs> Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion. And they were super nice and super appropriate about it. And like in retrospect, I'm sure I was like... You know, I thought I was like, oh, I'm totally keeping this to myself, and I'm sure I was
1: just like as moon eyed as possible, and like,
0: gee whiz, they're coming over again. Hey guys, how are you?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's also I, the tricky part is I, I mean it, it it sounds like the the uh, the author is doing everything right by maintaining physical boundaries, clear physical boundaries, but also you cannot actually talk to the kid about this because it'll be the most mortifying thing imaginable, um, right? Like, I I think I would actually just die. I would, I would, uh, like, my heart would stop and I would keep. Oh, over. God. Yeah.
0: If any of them had ever said something like, Boy, it's obvious you have a crush on all of us, I would have mm, transcended my physical body and become a pure spirit. <laughs> just <laughs> floating around like I was in a Hans Christian Andersen epilogue. Um, yes, I, I agree. And un- un- unless the kid, like, totally kind of breaks with reality and like tries to say something to you um at at, at which point you would need i think to talk both with your husband and with him about it i I don't think you need to like gently let him down like i think if he were to think about this for more than 20 seconds i'm sure he knows that this is like a crush that uh he does not need to say anything about but um i I think it's very sweet that you both want to like try to be um like present and helpful to him uh, but also, not like um, needlessly cause him pain. Uh, but, like, to that end, talk to your husband. You got to talk to your husband. It's totally fine to talk to him about it. I don't think he's going to like blame you for this. Um, and I think it will make you feel better to know that the two of you can kind of talk about and like that he can help you run interference. Like, he should just be in your corner on this one.
1: S- something else I-, I thought that might be useful, you know, a- a- aside from. Uh, being there for this kid if he has any any questions or um you know if, if if people give him shit at school or whatever um maybe trying to uh uh sort of mentor him in in a more like intellectual or artistic way if that may you know like 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 give him a book by like James Baldwin or John Ashbery or something like something that's very much like not physical if that mm-hmm. make, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: I I think there's going to be a couple of things that you can do. Like number one is just tell your husband and you know frame it in kind of the way that you have with us, which is just like, "Hey, um I feel a little goofy talking about this with you, but I've just noticed that like the kid seems a little enamored and um I mostly want to make sure that we're being like as kind as possible while also not um like opening up any situations where um I would have to like squash his feelings. Um and so just even like, you know, making sure that when you have a lot of people over that you and your husband have a place to sit together such that like he's sitting to one side of you and there's not another seat next to you. I, again, like not like he can never sit next to you again because you'll but like, you know, just trying to make sure that in general, you sort of have a strategy for maintaining good physical boundaries. If he jokily punches you, it's totally okay to just say like, hey, kiddo, like, please don't punch me. Um, if he playfully challenges you to wrestle, don't get involved in like a jokey back and forth. Just say like, nope. And like squelch it. You know what I mean? Like don't give a response to it. Don't turn it into this kind of like funny thing. He keeps bringing it up. Like just go real neutral um and and kind of try to remove as much tension as you can from the moment
1: like no. yeah you are not in my weight class <laughs> no don't actually really, i wouldn't actually like, say that but that's like <laughs>
0: oh yeah i know like of course like the goal is for him to get crushes on kids his own age and like that will eventually happen but i get that right now he's not really out and you have this like wonderful life that he wants for himself someday it makes a ton of sense that he would feel A little fixated. Um, And a lot of that's totally harmless. But yeah, absolutely. Talk to your husband. Um, If he's texting you a ton, you can always just say like, you know, hey, I'm at work right now. I'll talk to you later. Um, You can certainly if he says like, what celebrities do you think are hot? You can deflect that conversation um like like i like i i grew up uh, a child of ministers in the midwest like if anyone needs me to desexualize a conversation (laughs) like give me 30 seconds advance warning and i will be there and i will help you um yeah um and and i think like you said like um you and your husband both can like offer him books or like have conversations with him as a couple but kind of try to make it clear that um, the relationship that he can have with you guys is going to be as a unit, rather than like a real, real, real special friendship just between the two of you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and I think because the main goal here is for him to feel like he has a safe space with the two of you, um, that he is like loved and accepted, and that. You know, you're not like afraid of him or his feelings, but also that you're not going to kind of try to develop like a really, really special one on one relationship with him while he's at this really vulnerable time in life and clearly developing, you know, feelings for you that the best thing that could happen for all of you is that they, you know, fade as quickly as possible.
1: And the nice thing is, I'm sure in a year or two, he will probably look back on this and be like so embarrassed you know, oh, totally. when, when, he, when he first, like, dates a boy his own age, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's... There will definitely come a day where, like me, he will look back on his own memories and think, like, oh, oh, I was incredibly obvious. <laughs> oh, no. I was a child and I did not know how to manage my face. Um, and that's totally fine. Like, as long as the adults in question are, like, appropriate, sensible, caring people, um that ends up being just kind of like a funny moment where you look back and feel sort of heartbroken at like what a goon you were, but also a lot of affection towards the sweet little goon that you were. But yeah, I think you're already doing a lot right. The only other thing that will be helpful is talking to your husband. And again, making it really clear, like, I'm not like petrified of this. Like, I'm not stressed out. I know how to behave appropriately with a 14 year old. I just wanted to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And I think you guys are doing lovely, wonderful things with him and his brother. And I'm so glad that they have you. And now I'm just, like, remembering eighth grade in (laughs) way too much detail. And uh, I'd like to move, please.
1: Uh, Here's the... Is this the last one, or is there going to be a... It is the last
0: one, but I think we're going to be able to sneak in the the extra letter. So this is the second to last one.
1: Well, that's great. Um, This one, subject, selfish or sensible. Dear Prudence, my husband has always been close to his family. He grew up with his family living paycheck to paycheck. Now that he's grown, he takes it upon himself to support his mother, sister, and her two children. He pays for their cable, cell phones, and is always ready with a handout whenever something goes wrong or they can't pay a bill. We're at the point in our relationship where we're ready to buy a house and start a family, which means we need to start saving money. But I feel like we can't ever get ahead because someone always needs something. I make about twice what my husband makes, and I'm okay paying the big bills, but I need him to contribute how do I start the conversation with him that I need him to start focusing on our family and our needs and stop being the knight in shining armor for my in-laws? What's your take
0: here? Like, what's your kind of general feeling about, like, is it reasonable to say to somebody, I don't want you to give your family money?
1: I think I would need to know more about the situation, honestly. Um, Like, is is one of the family members, like, chronically ill? Um, Are they, like, are... Do they just like? Do they need help paying for like healthcare because America is a nightmare dystopia? Um, I mean, it, they she the, the author does say you know like like cell phone bills and 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 less serious things. So maybe that's an indication, but um, I don't know. I mean, there's... yeah, I
0: don't know. I mean, like to me, cell phones are kind of a necessity at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, most people no longer have home phones and do need their phones, um, both for work and just, like, in general to sort of, like, engage with society. So it doesn't quite sound like he's, like, buying everybody a new car every year. Um, I think think there's room here for two really different um, approaches to family finances. But, like, I don't know that, like, the letter writer is really quick to call them handouts. And sort of makes it sound like, you know, well, yeah, they grew up living paycheck to paycheck, but for whatever reason now, he's like taking it upon himself to support them indefinitely. But like, if this is a family that really, really struggled to put food on the table, it might be both really important and really necessary for your husband to feel like as long as he's able to, um, to help them out with regular expenses to be able to do that. And I don't know that it's going to be good for you to start with the assumption of like, okay, you need to stop. Um, Like, I I absolutely think that the letter writer can say, I want to have a conversation about this. I would ideally like to be able to commit to having a sort of like preset amount per month that you're going to be able to give your family and then also to be able to budget for expenses that we're going to have together. But I don't think you should go in with the mindset of like, sure, 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 you did that for a while, but these are handouts and you need to cut them off so much as like it does sound like in some ways his family is in kind of dire straits and is only like barely able to keep roofs over their heads um, in part because he's able to help
1: right like is is there something they can do uh, like to put them on a better financial footing in the longer term you know
0: yeah I mean sure I think that's a good conversation to have with the husband in question but basically I think the things that's going to be helpful to you is to say like here's how much I would like us to, to be able to put aside every month towards a house and a child rather than just like you know, now we need to get ahead. like Because getting ahead is such a vague concept. What does getting ahead mean to you, letter writer? Does it mean having an extended family that doesn't need money? Because that isn't going to be true for everyone. Um, So I think coming in with specific goals is going to be better than the time has come for you to cut your family off. I think for this to be a two-way conversation um, and... You know, certainly you can say, like, if your husband is doing this out of his own budget and he's not asking you for money to do this, you know, you have less grounds to sort of say, like, I want you to do this or not do this with your money so much as, like, I want to talk about what I would like to do together. Um, I want to ask you to consider, you know, maybe maybe restricting some of your help to them to, like, really necessary stuff. And then if it goes beyond that for one month saying, like, I'm not able to do it this month You'll have to look somewhere else, um
1: right, like i i I don't think he has to pay be paying their cable bills, but you know if right. somebody's car gets totaled or something
0: right, or if they can't pay a medical bill, that actually feels like good,
1: good that he can help exactly, um
0: yeah, so I think mostly like a lot of what you're asking for, letter writer is reasonable, which is to say, like I want to commit to budgeting for our own expenses and to prioritize that at least as highly as helping your family out but i would i would avoid language like being the knight in shining armor for my in-laws like if he grew up with this family living paycheck to paycheck and his mom can't pay like a car payment that's not being a knight in shining armor that's like helping the woman who raised him um and who doesn't have enough money to make ends
1: meet mm-hmm. yeah i mean my my dad grew up in a in a in a family uh a, a lot like that and he's uh very thrifty in most ways, but he was—he's—he's he's always like been willing to help out family members. I, I think because of those experiences,
0: yeah. And I think there's a really big difference between like you know I'll hear from people who are like I have an adult sibling who has you know made a series of really really lousy choices. And wants other people to be responsible for that and is asking to be bailed out after I've already given them a lot. And I totally understand why in those situations somebody doesn't want to do that. I don't think you have to give your family money, but I also don't think that doing it is necessarily a sign of arrested development. Um, And I think oftentimes people who think that adulthood means never giving your extended family money um, probably come from a family where that was never necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's a really different context from a lot of other people. Like if, I don't know, if my mom needed help paying a bill, I would give my mom money if I had it. I love my mom. That's all I got. (laughs) That's all I got. I like my mom. That's my like tough take today. Um yeah, all right, we got one more and you don't have it. I have it cuz it's a bonus and I thought we had enough time so I want to do it. Um and it it seems yeah, it seems in keeping with the theme of today. The subject is social anxiety, the sequel. Dear prudence, I'm in a grad program that's quite small and all the people I know, a considerable number who've graduated from it talk a lot about how close they were as a class. I can't stop mourning the fact that I'm not having the same experience. How can I stop worrying about the social aspect of the program, stop comparing it to past semesters, and just get the most out of it? I do have a few good friends, but the group itself is not cohesive, and after a few poorly attended attempts to host get-togethers, I'm really discouraged from continuing to try that route. I can't force these people to like each other or me, but I'm in a spiral of self-doubt. Are they not associating with me because I sometimes have bad work habits and they aren't interested in staying connected after we leave? I realize that I can't know what they're actually thinking, but this is something I worry about. I had trouble fitting in as a child in a pretty homogenous setting. I did not conform. But ever since adulthood, I've always been able to approach the people I wanted to befriend and easily strike up a friendship until now. I've been thrown back into a sea of social anxiety I thought I had left behind. Is it me? Does it matter? And if it doesn't, how do I stop distracting myself by grieving and just get some work done?
1: Oh, I I, I really feel for this this letter writer. Um... I
0: thought that you might have some... (laughs) deep wells of compassion on this one
1: <laughs> yeah um yeah former like for- former uh friendless dorks anonymous uh oh i i mean i never i uh i've never been in- to grad school or anything although um uh you know going to media parties in new york is basically like a perpetual grad school I, I The, the fact that also that everybody is kind of competing for academic jobs that don't exist anymore se- seems to make this so much worse.
0: Right. And then and the idea of like all these alumni like calling you up and be like, I just wanted to mention that when I went to this program, we were all best friends and we woke up in beds of lavender and then <laughs> danced around and translated <laughs> Latin for one another. And then we got matching tattoos. And, you know, now we're all... 10 feet tall and made of gold like that's not helpful um to be hearing and like maybe they were all that close but i'm also willing to bet that like years out of that grad program they have you know people who spend and again i'm assuming that they spent money and were not like being paid stipends but like grad school is really hard and you have to sacrifice a lot and sometimes people want to justify big expenditures by making something seem better than it was. So just remember that the people who talk about how close they were with the other members of their program are several years out from it um, and have perhaps really high motivation to color it with, like, rosy colors.
1: Oh, um, yeah. Rather than
0: to say, you know, like, actually there was one guy in the program who hated me, or, like, a bunch of real duds, or sometimes we just had no chemistry as a group.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I am from Canada, which is a country that doesn't have any ivy league or super exclusive liberal arts colleges basically canada is a land of state schools um Mm -hmm. and you know like the 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 university i went to the it has like fifty thousand undergrads or something absurd like that and whenever people here describe those kind of tight-knit grad school experiences to me um it, it half the time they they kind of it, it kind of it, it's like them venting. I uh I, I think it can definitely like it's not entirely like a fun social experience. Yeah,
0: these people have I think real reason to remember it more fondly than they actually experienced it at the time. So take what they have told you with a big old grain of salt. Um, I think it's probably actually a lot closer to your experience, which is to say that they probably had a few good friends. Like, if the group's pretty small and you have a few good friends, that's probably a big chunk of the group. You know, (laughs) just because having a, a couple of parties where not everyone showed up, that's not a sign that people aren't getting along. I mean, as you said, it's grad school. Like, probably really busy it may just be that they were feeling stressed out and overwhelmed that doesn't mean you should keep trying to host these get-togethers and drive yourself nuts trying to get everybody to become like really really close but um you know there are reasons that maybe not a lot of people showed up beyond simply they don't like you as a host
1: Hmm. yeah i don't think it's it's not like you know bright set revisited or something where you can spend your academic career just going to fabulous parties all the time and then occasionally show up uh, up in class and and saying uh, something terribly witty. Um, if you do that, you'll yeah. Probably that just... died with the war. <laughs> yeah, you, you you probably just flunk out. Um, so I, I think the most uh, the, the most reasonable explanation is that a lot of these people were just like chained to their computers um, yeah. and did not go go out that entire weekend.
0: Yeah. And so the the sort of fear is like both, oh, this is casting me back to childhood when I didn't fit in. And also they've somehow already sussed out that I don't really belong in this program. And they've already decided that I'm not worth associating with afterwards, which are two pretty big like fears, I think. So, um, you know, I think therapy is great for anyone in grad school. You may not have the time or the money, but if you're um Uh, If your institution has like a student counseling center, I would highly recommend uh, finding somebody you can vent to for an hour or so a week about the fears and anxieties that you have. Um, And then I would say focus on the good friends that you have now. Um, When you're in that spiral of self-doubt, I think you can just try to speak to that and say like, one or two poorly attended parties does not mean that everyone else has already decided that I'm not worth associating with. I got into this program. Multiple people in this program want to be my friends. So even if it doesn't feel that way, I actually have like external evidence that I am liked and accepted here.
1: I was just nodding and then realized that
0: Chris, that's... I can't see it when you nod. <laughs> I need your
1: words. That's that's not a that's not a that that doesn't make a sound. Um, no, but you're right. What helps you uh when you get thrown into uh that sort of oh
0: God am, is it just like in second grade again or like does nobody like me? does it help you to focus on something else? does it help you to focus on other people? does it help you to like take some time to yourself and just like leave the situation like does nothing oh work? my does god nothing help I what mean helps you
1: this also happens, like being a like being a freelance writer this it's a, it's not even always about uh you know secretly fearing that nobody likes me or whatever it's just about being. Y- you know locking yourself in your room and and feeling lonely um and i r- i really do love i i think exercise is 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 really good for this because it just like takes you out of your own head i i feel like uh, that that really helps for me. Um, what I kind lo- of exercise? I I always on, want honestly, to dial down to hear like what actually somebody does because literally anything. I mean, I, I just like using the elliptical because I can look at my phone at the same time, uh, which is <laughs> maybe maybe not uh, the the healthiest thing to admit. But there we go. Um, I really love and this you know you might have a a, a job that doesn't allow for this, but I really love like going to movies in the middle of the day um, mm-hmm. alone. Uh, I, I actually feel like that uh, kind of being in the presence of, of, all those strangers is, is, is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a temporary social experience, I suppose. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll also just, you know, I'll, I'll be like, is there anybody that is there like a friend that I haven't been in touch with for a while? Um, uh, like, like, maybe i should write them an email or just like s- send them like a stupid meme um i i think that um like trying to reconnect with people regularly is 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 like invaluable when 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 you feel that way
0: yeah and i think too it sounds like the letter writer has once they kind of aged out of that childhood not fitting in stage they then had a sort of like uh, uninterrupted chain of successes when it comes to social interactions where like everyone that they had t- approached wanted to be their friend. Mm-hmm. And so then it kind of felt like, okay, this is the new normal. And in reality, in life, sometimes you can be a super charming, delightful person to be around and you can try to strike up a friendship and somebody else is busy or full up on friends or they think you're fine, but they just have a lot going on in their own lives. And it doesn't mean that you are about to start sliding back into like a state of being a pariah. Um, it's just part of striking up friendships. You know, you're just gonna sometimes get people who are not interested and it's nothing personal. So um part of you might feel like the only two ways I know how to exist are being like anxious and alone or picking up all the friends I want whenever I want it. And so if it doesn't work after one or two attempts, it must mean I'm going back to that childhood state. And I think it'll just help in those moments to say, you know, I don't think this has anything to do with me. This person has not given me any reason to think they don't like me particularly. Um, they're probably busy and stressed out. And that was actually probably true of a lot of your friends who attended this program a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, grad school by its nature is a fleeting experience. So yeah. like for, for good or ill, it's this, this will be over soon. And you'll have to think about what you're doing next. Yeah,
0: and it's not going to be this like magical Dead Poet Society experience, which even Dead Poet Society was a real bummer. Um, although they got to like stand on some chairs and recite poetry at each other.
1: I've never actually seen that movie, even though I love John Lithgow. He's he's in it, right? Wait, John Lithgow is in Dead Poet Society? That doesn't seem right. Who oh, I I think I'm confusing it with some other uh, what's that guy's name? John, the the author. Um,
0: Wait, what? John the author. Isn't it based on a book? I actually don't know. I know Robin Williams is in it. I know Robert Sean Leonard is in it because it always used to like air super super edited on TV when I was a kid, like almost as much as the Shawshank Redemption. So I've seen Robert Sean Lennon like at the end of that movie, but being edited so you don't see him. Mild spoilers for Dead Poet Society. Um, (laughs) You don't see him die. I think in the TV version. But that's all I've ever seen is like the first scene where they rip up the poetry books and then the end when Robert Sean Leonard dies. Um, But God, if John Lithgow is in that movie, I got to give it another look.
1: Yeah, I completely thought that this was uh, based on a novel for some reason. John Lithgow is not in the movie. Are you Uh, thinking of
0: The World According to Garp? Yes. Because that's a movie with John Lithgow that's based on a novel, which I also haven't seen.
1: (laughs) Isn't it set? Is it also set at a college or? That I don't know. Wow. We, uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we'll get some voicemails letting us know
0: exactly what movie we are trying to think of.
1: It's it's a good thing that nobody is, is asking questions about, like, the history of cinema because... <laughs> we, I do,
0: like, have a vague sense of John Lithgow playing a professor of some kind. And it can't just be from Third Rock from the Sun.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's his sort of... He has this very interesting career where most of his early roles, he's playing this sort of, uh, like, murderous wasp sociopath like in -hmm. all of the in all the de palma movies that's basically what he's doing uh and extremely creepy and now he's like the cute avuncular dad (laughs) i um just want you to know that i've been googling john
0: lithgow during this entire conversation (laughs) and i'm currently reading an aarp magazine interview with him um which i i think is oh my god
1: wait what 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 happened
0: well i I just found out that his babysitter when he was very young was Coretta Scott King.
1: Holy, holy shit.
0: How did... Yeah, uh, this is astonishing. He He says, Coretta Scott was our babysitter when I was very young. I saw her later in 1974 when I did a Broadway comedy. She reminded me that she'd been my babysitter. I had not made the connection between Coretta and Coretta Scott King. Can you imagine finding that out from such an iconic person? That is remarkable. I learned something about John Lithgow today. <laughs> not not what movie we were thinking of, but something even better.
1: Can we, can we start a, a, a John Lithgow podcast? Yeah, absolutely. That's all the world according to John Lithgow. That's the new podcast
0: that we're doing. Chris, thank you so much. First. For coming all the way from Canada to this country. um, And then from coming all the way uh, from New York to my podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope that you never have to move again. That you get to live in this apartment until you die. And that nothing ever troubles you.
1: Thank you. I'm very confident that nothing bad will ever happen again.
0: I think we can both safely go out on a limb in saying that. Um, have a fabulous, fabulous rest of the day. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You
1: too. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEER, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening.